This message is a ministry of Plainville Baptist Church. www.plainvillebaptistchurch.org Oh, it's 3 to 11, by the way. Not 3 to 5. Oh, 3 to 5? Okay, never mind. Three to five. Okay. Let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you for allowing us to um, meet here and congregate in your house, Lord, and have this time of fellowship and learning. I ask that um, people would um, receive um, your message, Lord, and um, come to you today. And I ask that you just be with the children downstairs, Lord, and... Um, allow uh, their church to go well as well. And in Jesus' name, amen. All right. Good morning. Um, So we have Pastor Ronnie Rogers with us for the Fall Bible Conference on the issue of Calvinism this morning. If you were were not here at 9 a.m., you sure missed a good testimony. Uh, It it, it was live streamed, so you can watch that. post time, uh, if you want, on Facebook. But uh, Pastor Rogers uh, has been in pastoral ministry for 46 years, 40-something years, and uh, at Trinity Baptist Church in uh, Oklahoma for the last 25 years. Uh, he's, he's been married. He has two. He is married. He, his wife, Jeannie, and uh, two daughters with uh, husbands and seven grandchildren, um, I, I heard of Pastor Rogers. I was biking one day and was listening to a podcast, and he was being interviewed on the podcast, and uh, just uh, just appreciated his take, uh, as well as his gracious spirit in how he was uh, responding uh, to the questions he was being asked. And so I thought if I could contact him and, and have him here for uh, for us, uh, I thought it would be a, a great opportunity. And so today, for what I, I wanted to mention here, um, we have this book, Does God Love Some or All? All or Some? And um, we're going to give out copies of those tonight and tomorrow night uh, to certain individuals. We're going to unconditionally elect two individuals each session. No, we're not. Um, those who ask questions uh, have an opportunity to get a copy, a free copy of it. Otherwise, there are a couple of... Um, copies. See Joanne Reynolds if you want to buy them, $10 if you want to buy one. Uh, But there are only a few of those. Uh, We will be giving out. uh, Please, uh, if he's ministered to you this morning, uh, please consider um, giving toward uh, he and his family. Uh, Pastor Rogers. Come on up. And you're free to roam anywhere you care to. Thank you. I roam sometimes and sometimes I don't. Well, uh, again, it is great. I'm grateful to be here. I'm so thankful to your pastor for extending this invitation. Uh, When you do that, as a pastor, you're taking a great risk, even though he had heard me. He hadn't heard me as much as I'm going to talk at this time, this morning and this evening and tomorrow, 
So he's exercised trust, and I pray I'll not betray that in any way. It's already been a treasure to be here with you, and I trust the same this evening, this morning, this evening, and tomorrow night. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And I'm going to be speaking on the dynamic of the gospel encounter. The dynamic of the gospel encounter. What is actually happening according to the scripture between the person who is sharing and the one who is hearing and God involved in it, and he always is. The news that Lazarus had been raised from the dead had spread far and wide, and so quite a crowd had gathered of both Greeks and Jews. They had been asking questions, and of course Christ answered many, many questions. But in verse 34, they were asking more questions, and he did not answer them. Because the time had come to answer no more questions and to present the gospel so that people could be saved. We're going to be looking at verse 35 and 36. I'm going to read them in their entirety. And then we're going to back up and I'm going to point out the six components of these two verses. And through those, you will see the inside of the dynamic of the gospel encounter. When the gospel is spoken, what's going on, God is doing between the person presenting, the person receiving, or listening, and God himself. So notice with me in verse 35. This is chapter 12 of John, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of the light. The first thing I want you to notice is the presence of the light. The presence of the light. He says in verse 35, and the light is among you. In verse 36, you have the light. So Jesus said He is the light of the world in John chapter 8 and verse 12. And so in the gospel encounter, they have the presence of the one who is the light of the world They have the light of the truth of the gospel that is calling them to the one who is the light of the world. So there is the presence of the light. But notice the requirement in the light. And that is the second thing. And we see that in two verses or two phrases. They need to, verse 35, walk in the light. And in verse 36, they need to believe in the light. So, even though they had been enlightened by the light of the gospel and the presence of the one who is the light, that was not enough. They still needed to act. And they needed to walk 
and they needed to believe to receive what the light was offering. They had to act on the light. In other words, just being in the presence of the light is not enough. There is something we're required to do when we're encountered by the light. This heightens the reality that in the presence of the light, one has enough truth to understand the gospel. One has enough truth to to receive the gospel. But it is not enough to secure salvation for an individual. A person can be in the light and still not be saved. Paul, when he recounted why he was sent unto the Gentiles, he said in Acts chapter 26 verse 18, He was sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. Notice, they're not summoned while they're in the light. They're not summoned after they've had a regeneration or a partial salvation to make them ready to receive. They're summoned while engulfed in darkness, in the darkness of their sin, and the darkness of this world, and the blinders of Satan are on them. And yet, he says to call them to leave the darkness which they're in, and come to the light, to leave Satan which they're bound by, and come to God. It's happening while they're in the darkness. So the light of the gospel shines into the darkness. It doesn't wait for us to come out. It shines into the darkness. And there God summons us so that if someone is saved, it can be truly said that God called them, 2 Peter or 1 Peter 2.9, out of the darkness into His marvelous light. This is what I call the sufficient call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not an internal for the elect and an external that doesn't do any good in Calvinism The external call, the preaching of the gospel, does zero good. It cannot save anybody. You have to have an internal call, and only the elect get that. But here you see the sufficient call of the gospel. It penetrates the darkest corridors of Satan's kingdom and man's sin, and it calls people out of the darkness into the light. When you're in the presence of the light, We're called to believe. We're called to walk. And the light comes where we are. We don't move to where it is. So this is the sufficient call of the Gospel. It is extended while and to people who are in the dark pits of hell and their sin. The third thing I would point out out of these two verses is both of the words walk and believe or what we would say grammatically, it is a present tense. It is active in its voice. I'll explain this. It is plural, and it is an imperative. The words you in both these verses, each time they appear, they are plural. Now because grammarians decided somewhere to sophisticate us, They made the you for a lot of us the same as a you for one of us. Now, I grew up in Arkansas, and we were grammatically ahead of the world. That's right. 
If we said you, we just wanted you. But if we wanted all of you, we said y'all. Nobody was ever in doubt. And in some places in Arkansas, if they wanted all of you, they said youans. They put an I-N-S on the end. And everybody knew they were included. But now, it's just you. So, they're all plural in these two verses. They are present tense. And in the English, the present tense tells you the time of the event. It's happening now. In the original language, the emphasis is upon the kind of action. And so the present tense has the idea of continuous action. And that's why you can take these verbs like believe and walk, and you can see he is calling them to be a believer. Someone who continues to believe. Someone who walks with him. So they are present tense. They are active, meaning the people who are hearing have to do the acting. They have to respond. And they're in the imperative mode, meaning it is a command. So what he is saying is, he is commanding everyone within the range of his voice to believe and to walk, become believers or followers of him. It can be seen here, the enlightenment of the gospel is offered unconditionally but the reception of the benefit of the gospel is conditional. It's conditioned upon the person choosing to walk and choosing to believe. And this is the nature of the gospel. What you're seeing here happens every time in the gospel. It happens every time. When we share, they're being called to believe. They're being called to become a believer and walk with Christ. In the gospel is the invitation. Declare the gospel. Christ died for your sin. Believe in Him, you will be saved. That's the gospel and the invitation. You have to believe. You have to do something. You see, beloved, the dividing line is not between the elect and the non-elect. It's between those that believe and those who choose not to believe. This is clarified in the book of Hebrews. And the writer says this, For indeed, We have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed enter into that rest, just as he had said. You see, the difference was not elect or non-elect, He said, they heard the same word, the same message. Everything was there. But they chose not to believe. And therefore, the word did not profit them. The profit is in accepting and acting on the light that is there. The fourth thing I want to show you is the urgency of the message. The urgency of the message. You can see that in... Verse 35, two phrases, for a little while longer. Another phrase, while you have the light. And then that phrase again is repeated in verse 36, while you have the light. The GE lexicon of Greek based on semantic domains says that the word translated there means briefly. For a short time. You can see in that when he's saying, 
while you have the light, you can see the pathos, the passion of Christ, the urgency. There is a temporary time while you have the light, implying that you're not always going to have the light. Now that urgency comports and fits well with a temporal opportunity to receive the gospel. But it does not fit with unconditional election. A Calvinist can tell you, well, we, we have a passion and there's an urgency to share the gospel because we're commanded by God and they are right. There is that urgency and they are correct. That's not what this passage is talking about. It's not the urgency of the ones sharing it, it's the urgency on the ones that are hearing it because while the light is there for a brief time, for a short time. So this urgency does not comport with unconditional election because it doesn't matter if you are elect if five minutes passes or 50 years passes. You still will be saved. Time does not diminish that. Nor does time enhance the status of the non-elect. It doesn't matter whether five minutes passes or 50 years passes. It does not affect their state that they cannot be saved. You see, in the very passage, it is repudiating the idea of unconditional election. Nobody knows the time. Nobody knows it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 and 32, about the unpardonable sin, and I take that to ultimately believe that they understand that they didn't accept Jesus Christ as Savior. That's what keeps you out of heaven. That, that verse haunts us because no one knows when that time passes except the Father. And then death hovers over every breath of every human. This one came very briefly. In verse 36, it speaks of Jesus and it says, and he went away and he hid himself from them. And the time had passed. The fifth thing I want you to see is that this light overcomes the darkness. And the darkness refers to our dark, sinful heart. The darkness of the world that's in the lap of Satan. The darkness that we have because he puts blinders on us so that we cannot see the gospel. It, it penetrates all of that. So all of the darkness, it overcomes all of the darkness that keeps us enslaved. So notice, while they're still in the bowels of darkness, while they're still in the darkness of Satan's kingdom, while they are under the canopy of the judgment of Almighty God on their sin, the light penetrates what nothing else can penetrate. Jesus said, I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. John 12, 46. Notice, He came as the light of the world so that people would believe and not remain in darkness. When he's asking them to believe, just like here, they're lost. They're not Christians. And they're in darkness. But he says, if you believe, you will not remain there. 
always is the coal and the light shining in our darkness. And that's where the coal is given because God is enabling us to come out of that through the light and the power of the gospel. And again, the gospel, the power of the gospel, Paul doesn't say it brings the power of God. It's, it's uh, associated with the power of God. He says the gospel is the power of God. When the gospel encounter happens, God is present and the power of God is there and it overpowers the darkness of Satan and sin and this world. In man's sinfulness, he alone can do nothing. Look at verse 35. In this darkness alone, without the light of God, he wanders in darkness. He does not know where he goes. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave when they turn out the lights. And I mean literally, you come to learn what pitch black is. You can't see your finger in front of your face. And then if they ask you to turn around, you have no idea where you are at all. And what he's picturing is they're in that kind of spiritual blackness on their own. All of us were. All humans are. And we know not where we go and we keep walking down the broad road taking this path that promises eternal life but it ends up leading to damnation. And then there's another path and another path. And man can never liberate himself from this darkness. He is imprisoned in his darkness of his sin and darkness of Satan's kingdom and in Satan's blinders that he's put upon us. The only hope for a person so encapsulated by the darkness of sin and Satan is to be liberated by the light of God that overcomes that darkness. Jesus said again, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 8, 12. Notice again, follows me. That's a present tense, becomes a follower of me. Where does he do that? He's in the darkness. He's in the darkness. And the light penetrates the impenetrable darkness and illumines man's way, and he can see, and he can understand, and he's also grace-enabled to be able to walk out of that darkness so that his sin cannot keep him, Satan cannot keep him, his blindness cannot keep him, because to say that that does is saying it overpowers the light of God, and it does not. It does not. The call to believe and follow and walk and obey doesn't come after regeneration for some. Remember, all the verbs are plural. He's talking to everybody that's there. It doesn't come after there's some kind of new birth. But it comes while people are in the clutches of the cauldrons of hell. And they're on the precipice of eternal damnation. And they are helpless on their own without the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you read this, as we are doing, it seems like Christ is making a genuine, urgent, passionate plea and offer for those that are imprisoned by their sin and darkness to be able to be saved and walk in the light. That's what it appears like. But if unconditional election is true, then it's a cruel command for the non-elect. 
And it's a phantom opportunity. It doesn't actually exist. It makes Christ, rather than the preacher of truth, it makes him theatrics, theater, an actor, pretending. But while in darkness we see the gospel penetrates what is unpenetrable, the darkness, and goes back and illumines man and empowers man because it is the power of God. And there's no power that can stand against the power of God. And that's what the gospel is. That's what the presence of Christ is. That is what the convicting of the Holy Spirit is. What sometimes my Calvinist brothers and sisters act like is we're talking about it's just us. And we're doing this. No. It's what God is doing. This grace and understanding is not enough to understand everything about the gospel or what all went on or anything else, much less. But it's enough to understand where we are and what's being offered and that we have the ability to walk out by God's grace if we choose. I was saved at 25 years old and my background meant that my understanding of the gospel was jejune or probably infantile. I didn't use any of the correct words. I didn't tell somebody after I got saved that night. I, just, I look back on what happened in that crucible of time for me, and I would never use it as an example for anybody else. I've never seen it in a track. It wouldn't be a good track. Don't use it. I did everything wrong except one thing. And in the most childlike faith, I just believed. I said, I trust you. And that was it. I didn't own a Bible. I went and bought one pretty quick, but I didn't own one. So I didn't know enough what to say. I remember after being saved a couple of weeks and studying every day and had gotten a Bible I remember walking in the kitchen and I said to my wife, I held the Bible up and I showed her a verse. I said, this is why I'm different. I got saved that time. And I said, this is why I'm so different now and I'm not the person you married. And she got saved two months later. Unconditional election makes Jesus appear like he's offering a real opportunity for people to be saved and it's a command that is obeyable. But if unconditional election is true, that's not true. Because you see, that makes Jesus one of the triune God who developed the system of unconditional election and decided that some would be lost forever and some would be saved. And he alone decided that and it's unconditional. My Calvinist brothers and sisters, they will say, well, Ronnie, Jesus was a person and as a human, he did not remember doing that or knowing about that. And he didn't know who the elect were and who the non-elect were. And I say to them, you have missed my point. And here is my point. In John chapter 12, verse 49 through 50, and there are other verses you will think of, Jesus said this, The things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. In other words, when Christ is speaking, He's speaking the words of the Father. And no amount of relying on a good faith offer 
can exonerate the Father because the Father did know who the elect were and did know who the unconditionally non-elect were. And he acted like, had Jesus to act like, they could all be saved. And we're now getting to how it hurts the character of Almighty God. Nor can you assuage the difficulty by saying, well, maybe they were all elect. And if they were all elect, then that presentation Jesus made would have been okay. No, verse 37, some did not believe. Verse 42, some did believe. The reason Jesus presented it the way he did is because God had provisioned for the salvation of every single person, and God desires every person to be saved. And I'll tell you another thing. I believe that every person that's ever lived since the fall gets an opportunity to know God and be saved. I spend four chapters in the book showing that. So when they say, what about the one that didn't hear the gospel? I try to address that. So God loves people and He wants them saved. He wants all of His creation. The sixth thing I would show you is there are two reasons why one should believe and walk in the light. So we saw the urgency of the gospel delivery in while you have the light, this brief time. Now we see the indeterminacy of the gospel, meaning there's no determined conclusion. When the gospel is preached, there's no determined who will be this and who will be this. People are making choices to either believe or not believe. We see that with the two uh, dual words, so that. So that introduces a purpose clause tells you the purpose of something. So if you said, well, I'm going to go to the grocery store so that we can have chicken tonight. See, you're going to the grocery store. Why? So that we can have chicken. I'll get chicken. I'm going to fill the car up tonight so that we can leave in the morning straight on our vacation. You see, I'm going to fill it tonight so that. So we do this all the time. The Bible does it. There are two purpose clauses why they need to accept the light and believe and walk in the light. One of them is negative, and one of them is positive. The first one that's negative is in verse 35. So that darkness will not overtake you. And then the positive, so that you may become sons of light. Now, if you look at those two phrases, without the importation of theological commitments, you realize there's no determinism going on here. Because there's a purpose clause. Why are you to do this? So that you can become children of the light. And so that you will not be overcome with darkness again. There is a purpose to why they're doing it. And it's said to all of them. So they are to believe. They are to walk or to become believers. Why? So that they can become children of God. Why? So that the darkness will not overcome them again. And which they will walk aimlessly forever and ever in if they have sinned away their time to be saved. Yes, it is true. And even though they are children of wrath and they are dead in trespasses and sin, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, they are imprisoned in spiritual darkness, but it is the power of the gospel, the light of the gospel and truth that penetrates that and enables them 
and enlightens them so that they can be saved out of the darkness in which they still remain. If they become a believer so that you become sons of light, they thereby are not overtaken by the darkness they have been in. So it's critical to see, beloved, before the gospel encounter, they're in this darkness walking and they know not where and they cannot liberate themselves. When the gospel light is there, they can believe, they can walk, they can come out, they can understand. But if the light is taken away, which is just there for a short time, they will be overcome with the darkness again. In the gospel encounter, if you will, the darkness is held in abeyance. The light has penetrated the darkest corridors of sin and Satan. If they do not respond to the gospel, it will overtake them again. I mean, what could be clearer when I read this just as it is that people, all people he's talking to, are commanded to come out of the darkness and they can do that by believing and they do that by walking. But it's only for a short time. Because when the light is there, they have the opportunity. When the light is gone, they're back in the darkness where they roam around and walk around in darkness. Remember the you is in the plural form. It includes everyone. So everyone can become a child of the light. And they thereby are not cast back into the darkness. What's happening in the gospel encounter is that the darkness is looming ominously but not controllingly. Like a lion, a mountain lion sitting up on the edge of the mountain and waiting to pounce on his prey. And so the darkness is held by the gospel in abeyance, but it's just waiting. And when the light is gone, the darkness falls. What caused the darkness to be penetrated was the gospel light. It's like when you walk in a room and it's dark. What makes the darkness go away? The light. Take the light away. What happens? The darkness comes back. The darkness is the absence of light. Christ is the light of the world. The gospel, the light of the gospel penetrates the darkest darkness of our sin and Satan. And it cannot overpower God when the gospel is working. You see the word overtake? It's the word in the original katalambano. Lambano is the word for take, take something. And they put a preposition in front of it, kata, which intensifies it. So it's take, but intensified, and thus they translate it overtaken. It's used in Mark chapter 9, verse 18, of a man to control him. So that you are not controlled by the darkness. Right now they're not under the gospel light, but you need to become a child of the light so that you will not once again be controlled by the darkness. It bespeaks of an ominous, imminent cloud of uncertainty. You are to believe so that you can become a child of God and not be overtaken again and wander aimlessly because the light of the gospel is gone. 
remember the time is uncertain. And that this just stands there over them. So the prince of darkness, the dark of night, surrounds them. Their sin has encapsulated and imprisoned them. But they can believe at this moment when the gospel light penetrates the darkness. Yes, it is true. Satan is the ruler of this world, John chapter 12, verse 31. It is true. He rules and leads the kingdoms of darkness, principalities and powers and dominions. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It is true that Satan blinds us to the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It is true that we are dead in trespasses and sin. But what is portrayed here and is clearly shown is that when the gospel encounter happens and the light of the gospel is there presenting the person who is the light of the world, then all of that is subjugated to the power of God during that encounter. It is no rival. As man is no rival for Satan's blinders and our own sin and his own dominion, and so we wander aimlessly, so Satan, sin, and his dominion are no match for God when he is working. So crucial to understanding the dynamic of the gospel encounter is that it is obviously just reading the passage as it is. It is transpiring without a determined, unalterable, unconditional election having taken place where some are going to be saved no matter what. Time makes no difference. And others are going to be lost no matter how many times you command them, no matter how much light. That really gets to being dishonoring to God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the gospel. And they don't mean that, but it does happen. This warning is as meaningless as the offer of deliverance if unconditional election is true. It's just words. It's just theatrics. What you find here is that the gospel, we're reminded, is never to merely inform people. It's never merely merely to tell them what's going on, what they could do. It's always about doing something. And there's always that urgency because we never know when a person's going to die. We never know when grace is going to be withdrawn. We never know. None of us. God knows that. But we know in the gospel encounter, they have an opportunity They are commanded to do it, and they can do it. They are unable to do it. I know people have abused the invitation. There's debate. Should you even have an invitation? Well, just because people abuse something doesn't mean you quit doing it. I mean, people have abused love, gifts, everything. I don't know of anything that we haven't messed up. What you do is you just do it right. But as I said at the beginning, when you look at the gospel, even in this short, short passage, inherent in the gospel is the invitation to believe, to walk, to literally become a believer. And what we're doing, we're inviting people to obey the scripture, 
and follow Christ while the light of the gospel is penetrating their dark, sinful heart and they can walk out of that. Will you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, you died for us, that you want everyone saved. And Lord, we pray that you've not left us to our own strength, but you've brought your strength to bear upon liberating us so that we can make the choice to become believers and follow Christ and be delivered from the darkness and damnation of hell. And Lord, I pray for everyone here to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they know the Lord Jesus and they've experienced that. And then I pray for all of us as we share the gospel. We never feel alone. We never feel that it's just two people talking. But always are you present. And always when you are present, your power is there as well. May we trust you in that. We love you in Christ's name. Please stand. We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. As we get ready to sing this invitation time, are you without Christ? The message was simple and direct. God's speaking to all of you through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come into the light. Receive Christ as your Savior. If you're without Him, you come as we sing and receive Christ. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to sing one more verse. The power of God is here to save you if you need him. There'll be someone here to pray with you to receive Christ if you need to call upon Him. You come and seek the power of God. Let's sing. Through death into life everlasting He passed and we follow Him there Over us and no more hath the minion For more than conquerors we Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray together. Pastor Rogers, would you um, head to the foyer in case those want to speak with you on the way out? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and praise your name. You are great. You are good. You always do good. We thank you, Lord, for such a, such a message, and Lord, that when we tell others about the Lord Jesus, 
you are there. That the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ is what illumines the heart. Thank you, Father, that it's not up to us to convince, persuade, cajole. But that, Lord, your Holy Spirit is working. And the light of the gospel is illuminating the heart to the way to your Son. Oh, God, we thank you for that. We thank you that in saving us, you've given us a heart to see this very truth that we might be able to tell others about this gift that's not of us, but of you. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.